Hello and welcome to 3M's Inside Angle podcast. This is your host, Dr. Gordon Moore, and today I'm talking with Terry Shoulder. Terry, tell me a little bit about your role and the organization in which you work. Well, I am the Senior Vice President, Chief Quality Officer for Baycare Health System. I'm responsible for our clinical excellence strategy, deployment, ensuring continuous improvement, um, areas under the clinical excellence umbrella here at Baycare Health System include in addition to the strategies, include accreditation and regulatory compliance, performance improvement, our team of Lean Six Sigma engineers, as well as clinical documentation improvement. And you guys are are located in Florida, is that correct? We are. So we are um, one of the leading nonprofit uh, healthcare systems located in South Central Florida. Um, We cover a service area of about four counties. We have 15 hospitals, uh, multiple convenient locations, urgent cares, Um, We have one of the largest home health care agencies in the nation. Um, We're one of the largest private employers in the area, estimated uh, six, little over six and a half billion in annual impact to not only our region, but also the state. We've consistently over multiple years had a AA2 credit rating, which is something we're extremely proud of. That's pretty enviable. The, the reason I wanted to talk with you today is that I had the opportunity uh, to hear you talk about readmission work that you guys had done, and I was really impressed. I thought that it was interesting in terms of how data-driven, how focused you were, how clear you were on measurement and understanding impact, and also thoughtful about the kinds of innovations you brought to bear. And so I would love to ask you about how that work started and uh, then get into how you did it and lessons learned and things like that. All right, well, thank you. So let me take you back to 2016. So around 2016, our board of directors set a goal for the health system to achieve top quintile in overall quality and safety compared um, to the nation's large health systems. So what we used was the annually published um, IBM Watson, formerly Truven, 15 top health system scorecard to kind of gauge our progress at the time. Well, it was the only um, scorecard that really would nationally rank you against uh, similarly sized health systems. And at that point in time, we were at the 25th percentile, so not too good, you know, sitting there in the bottom quartile. And our journey has has taken us quite a long way. We've seen drastic improvement in multiple measures, and we've actually uh, made it to the 86th percentile based on the most recent report that was published in April. So, you know, although that improvement has has just been phenomenal and due to a lot of efforts from a very high-performing team of employees and physicians, you know, we were still having problems with both Medicare spend per beneficiary and the 30-day readmissions. And, you know, we know that these two are linked, obviously, because in our current fee-for-service world, we're still getting paid for those readmissions, um, which is also included in the Medicare spend post-discharge 30 days. So that's what we started looking into. Of course, when um, the hospital readmission reduction program was introduced through CMS, this caused a lot of health organizations to say, well, we really need to get a grip on this. Um, not to mention the fact that what's more important than that is, is that, you know, it's a part of our mission, right? We need to serve the communities and having preventable readmissions is really just not acceptable and not aligned with our mission. So, you know, so we really started putting a lot of focused efforts into, you know, how can we, how can we address these high-risk populations? 
And what we do know is when we look at the uh, CMS Hospital Readmission Reduction Program, uh, the reports say, according to uh, ARC, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, readmissions have allegedly dropped 8% since 2011. Now, one thing that's really interesting, um, I say allegedly, because earlier this year, the, uh, the uh, AHIMA, American Health Information Management Association, and uh, Modern Healthcare both published articles calling into question the real versus perceived reduction in readmissions since HRRP uh, was introduced. And apparently, you know, this was from a study out of JAMA previously, a year or so earlier than that, that showed that a 63% reduction in readmission rates based on the, the HRRP population was actually related to coding severity. Well, what had happened is there was a change in um, how many codes, additional diagnoses were being used in the HRRP program, which impacted the hospital's risk adjustment score. So, you know, that was, was allegedly resulting in, in the appearance of lower readmission rates. So I just thought that was really interesting, and it's something that I think that, that everyone um, should be aware of as we're looking at, at readmission reduction rates, the impact that documentation and coding can have on this trajectory. So the study basically concludes that the nationwide estimates in readmission reduction uh, since HRP was introduced could possibly be about 50% less than what we thought. So I just thought that was kind of something interesting that, that people may want to know. I was just thinking that uh, it is interesting as you think about when we look at rates of things for populations, how important it is to represent the true illness of the people, because of course we would expect a, a healthy person to have a lower probability than somebody with multiple unstable conditions. And so if there's an underrepresentation that in the data set, that of course the rate may be high, but it may not represent the reality of what's going on. So, and that's what I hope has happened since then, is that maybe there's been an improvement in the accurate representation of the total illness of people who are coming out of the hospital. On the other hand, you know, I hope that it's not gaming the system. Do you have any sense of, of if it's one or the other? I, I do have a sense just based on what we've done, but I tell you what's even more important than than and having that risk adjustment included in there is being able to identify those components that make that person high risk so that when we put programs in place to make sure they have a successful recovery, uh, that we're meeting their needs post-discharge, right? Um, you know, understanding the, the severity of, the, of their condition and making sure that, that we have a comprehensive picture of that acuity really is going to impact how we set these folks up to be successful at home. In the story that you're telling about what the work you were doing, that sounds really interesting to me. Again, I, one part that fascinates me is the ability to use data to make intelligent decisions, because I, I think that there's often a mismatch between the application of resource and the need of the person, and that's that's waste. You know, we, we don't need that. We need the right person to get the right care. So how did you guys come to do that better over time? So in the early days, basically, we were kind of learning to crawl with readmission reduction. It was it was elusive. We had a hard time uh, at that point in time, even with the EMRs, we didn't necessarily have a risk adjustment. And so, you know, in the early days, we were focusing on making sure that, you know, we understand who these folks were, um, you know, who was at high risk and, and um, you know, what could we do for their discharge planning that would help them be successful. And, you know, at that point in time, I think probably very common in the industry, we had good months, sometimes followed by great months, but the bottom always inevitably fell out. And so sustainability in those early years was really elusive. 
Um, so we were trying anything <laughs> short of witchcraft to prevent readmissions at that point, but we just were not, we're not, we're not hitting the right things. Um, so by 2017, we had put in place seven post-acute programs. Everything from we had we had a preferred provider skilled nursing facilities, automated follow-up phone calls to patients, uh, telemonitoring. We had um, advanced practice um, nurse home visits, uh, among some some other programs. And in, in 2017, you know, we, we started to walk. We started to see that some of these programs were. And in fact, being effective, what we didn't know at this point in time was which ones, right? So we had these seven programs pretty much operating in, in, in silos. So we did some, some in-depth analysis to try to come up with the power combos. So which of all of these programs were having the greatest impact in preventing readmissions? And so, you know, with that, we, we started to see a decrease in our readmission rate going from 2017, we were at about an OE ratio of 1.04 to a 0.97 by about mid-2018. And so we were starting to see an impact, but like I say, we weren't sure which programs were working and which were not. And, and so we did a deeper analysis on that to try and identify what effects that they were having and actually ended up um, eliminating a couple of those that were proven to have uh, minimal impact on preventing readmissions. How did you know which of the programs were more or less impactful? What data did you use to come to that conclusion? Well, what we did is we, we looked at each individual program on its own merit. And so, you know, as we looked at, we would look at the readmission rate of patients that were impacted that just had a, that one program. So say they just had um, the ARMP visits at home or say they um, just had home care with telemonitoring. And so we kind of segmented it that way. And, you know, it wasn't, I can't say that it was a perfect science, um, but it was very directional. And, and helped us identify which, you know, which combos of those programs were the most effective. Got it. Were, you, were there certain places where the dominant intervention was one particular program and therefore you could say, well, let's look at this facility because they're mostly doing this thing. And is that one of the ways you, you carved it out? Yes. So, so one, of the, one of the things that we knew you know, right off the bat was that our, our pharmacy transitions of care program was very effective in identifying patients that couldn't afford their medications. And so we would you know, then help that population, maybe patients that were discharged on duplicate therapies, et cetera. So, you know, so we did identify that the pharmacy transitions of care um, was having the greatest impact on mitigating risk of, of readmissions. You know, as we looked at these programs and we were saying, all right, what is working the best and how can we figure this out? Um, you know, a big driver was the fact that this was a 13, approximately $13.5 million price tag on all of these post-acute programs to try and mitigate risk of, of readmissions. The needle still wasn't moving like, like we anticipated or like we felt that it should. And so our ODE ratio by mid-2018 was pretty close to what it was in 2017. However, what was really interesting is we did, um, uh, we did a control chart, and, and what we discovered, the chart was our performance from 2016 through uh, 2017, just to see if those post-acute programs had had an impact in reducing variability in outcomes, and it had. So um, the upper control limits were decreased in 2018 to 1.12 um, compared to uh, 1.22 in 2017. 
2016 and then 1.48 in 2015. So, so basically we reduced that variability from 2015 going from 1.48 to 1.12 um, in about the middle of 2018. And so, you know, that tells us that our results are definitely consistent and, and stable. And you know, so so we so we saw this decrease in variation, but like I say, we still we still weren't hitting that target. And so we know that according to ARC, 72% of readmissions are medication related. And although we had the post-acute pharmacy transitions of care, where pharmacists were calling patients, following up, making sure they got their meds, we had not addressed the accuracy of the medication reconciliation process in the hospitals. So we were finding med errors post-discharge with the pharmacy transitions of care. And, you know, but the thought was, gosh, you know, let's bring that inside. Let's make that proactive versus reactive and have the pharmacists involved in the medication reconciliation before the patient leaves, you know, with the goal of just improving that discharge medication reconciliation by using guideline-directed therapy, evidence-based medicine, watching for duplicate medications, suboptimal dosing, um, you know, patient comprehension and adherence um, and ability to afford their medications. So by bringing that, you know, all in, in the hospital, our, our thoughts were that we could, you know, proactively approach it, giving the patient a better chance when they, when they discharge home of a successful recovery. So to do that, of course, it's, it's resource intensive. And so what we decided to do was a pilot. And so we selected one of our, one of our hospitals and we randomly selected about a little over 300 uh, Medicare patient charts. Uh, the clinical pharmacists would review for the guideline-directed therapies, looking for you know those those things that I just mentioned. So duplicate therapy, optimal dosing, adjustments for say renal failure or any other like special recommendations. The results were were pretty compelling. So out of the 303 records, we found 87 to have duplicate therapy. 32 had uh, inappropriate directions for use. 62 had uh, omissions from what the specialist had recommended. It, it was just it was just so compelling, and so you know we went right from that into establishing um, the process where the pharmacist you know would, would continue to do those uh, medication reconciliations, and then compare that to a control group with the outcomes. You know the outcomes we were trying to achieve. The objectives was to reduce readmissions. And so while the intervention group had the medrec done by pharmacy, the control group got the usual standard of care with nursing, transcribing, and the physician signing off. Um, the difference in readmission rates were pretty compelling. The intervention group uh, readmissions were 7.63%, and the control group without any intervention was 15.5%. Uh, statistically significant p-value um, less than uh, 0.05. So we were thinking, all right, this is absolutely effective. It's the best thing to do with our patients. And so, you know, we took this to our executive leadership team. We took it to our board and were approved to add uh, 13 pharmacists across the health system to do a remote version of medication reconciliation. Currently, we have a 97% physician acceptance rate of the pharmacist recommendations that Patients are going home on the right things. What happens in the process, the physician will review the recommendations by the pharmacist, may modify, um, and then approves or declines. And so if 2019 year to date, our readmission OE ratio is at 0.90, which is the lowest it's been since prior to 2016.
So excellent wow. results. Yeah, that's that's how we use that data to drive readmissions. Well, this is the the results are huge, and that's absolutely terrific. Well, I'm I'm also thinking about the price tag and how you sell that to uh, hospital leadership. How did that happen? Okay, so the the price tag, yes, it, it was it was pricey, but when we go back to our mission to serve the community, you know, it's the right thing to do for patients. And it's tough. You know, we are in a we are in a fee for service world and we do get reimbursed for these readmissions. Um, but the right thing to do is to make sure these folks have a successful discharge. And our leadership team here at Baycare, the C suite as well as the hospital leadership team and our board are absolutely committed first and foremost to clinical excellence. We're in a great position to be able to serve the community in that capacity and and make sure that we're doing the right thing by our patients. And that implies that there's not necessarily an ROI in doing this work. It's really based on, you know, doing the greater good, or is there also an ROI? It's absolutely at this point in time based on doing the greater good because, Gordon, we, um, you know, like I say, it's that fee for service. So you reduce readmissions, you're going to be reducing um, the hospital's revenue. So it really is about doing the right thing. If the policy was standing next to me, I'd want to kick it in the ankle for that. That's unfortunate, but you know, certainly I'm pleased to hear about the positive results. Has that so that you've achieved that level in 2019? Is that pretty fresh, or has that been around long enough that you think it's going to stick? I think it's fresh. I think it's going to be around. So, so our first four months were January was the lowest January we've ever had. I think we came in at about 0.81 in January. Uh, February started to climb up just a little bit. That's, you know, here in Florida, it's not uncommon to have a higher acuity, of course, in the winter months because we have people that are down here living that, that do not live here in the summer months. So I feel like it's sustainable. You know, of course, we're going to keep an eye on it. And, and there's, there's, there's so much more to do. So we still have not um, been able to effectively address the social determinants of health and, and find, you know, the question is how do we identify these folks? We, you know, we have our community needs assessment, so we know pockets, areas, zip codes uh, where we have opportunities such as, you know, food insecurities, transportation, housing, you know, but there, there's so much about readmission reduction strategies that are pretty much archaic. So I, I heard uh, uh, Dr. Eric Coleman speak recently, and it was just, it was so compelling because, you know, there's just so much more to do in in, in discharge planning. He was mentioning that um, you know, with discharge planning, we tend to think about, you know, the, the historic information. We, we tend to think about uh, the goals being around that person's goals being, all right, you reduce your sodium by this so that you don't have heart failure, da-da-da-da-da. And what was so interesting is that thinking about, not about our goals, but what are the patient's goals? And, you know, that sometimes the patient's goals might not have anything to do with their heart. He was telling a story about a woman um, named Mabel who her goal was to go to church, be able to go to church. And it wasn't anything about her heart. It was about being able to fit into her shoes because she refused to wear slippers to church. She was embarrassed. And so, you know, if we think about tying um, the goals to what what's important to our, our patients and important to our communities, then, you know, maybe we can start going down the path of supporting those goals versus thinking like clinicians all the time and believing that just because we know it's about the patient's heart, that the patient thinks it's about their heart, right? So yeah, it was, it was just, it was really good. Some other advice that he gave was, you know, thinking about the discharge plan and, and do that discharge plan with the end user in mind, making it more 
about the future versus the historic. You know, does the patient know what to do if the symptoms occur off hours? You know, do they know who to call? Do they know, you know, what resources are available? I think that despite the fact that all of us have probably been to tons of, of presentations on readmissions, I think there's so much more to explore around social determinants and, and kind of getting to the bottom of, of how we can help these folks at high risk. So is that where you guys are going next? It is. It is. So we're, you know, we're working on strategies through our ACO. Uh, we have very successful ACO looking at how can we leverage our uh, physician offices to collect important information, maybe, you know, electronically be able to get advanced directives and have the conversations in the physician's office um, to activate the family and, and, you know, making sure that we're meeting the family's needs, the caregiver's needs. Caregivers are often overlooked in when we're doing a lot of this discharge planning. Um, you know, so, so what can we do to, to help them as well as the patients themselves? What resources are out there? Are you guys doing any uh, testing at this point, or are you still in the planning phases? We're actually still in the planning phases with the social determinants. You know, like I say, part of the challenge is identifying who these folks are, and and then, you know, we can we can add another challenge too. So we can add assessment criteria to identify food insecurities or to identify, you know, other social determinants. But we can't do that without having the resources in place to follow up on it. Right. So do we have the food banks identified? So, you know, having to understand, you know, how we're going to make sure that that there's a closed loop process takes a lot of a lot of planning. Um, But that's that's exactly what we're in the middle of. I really appreciate your recognition of having the resources in place. I was part of a, a diabetes and depression collaborative in New York City years ago. And one of the frustrations on the practices participating was the screening led to a lot of unmasking of depression but they didn't have the resources to address the unmet need and therefore felt like they would almost rather not know, uh, which is really not where we need to be in healthcare, but it does point out that the more you're uh, able to front load the resources to meet the unmet need, the better off you're gonna be. I think about that in terms of you know how you assess for factors that get between people and outcomes that are important to them. And, and the reason I use that phrase is that it's more than just social determinants because there's so many other things like Mabel with fitting into her shoes. It's really the value of what's important to Mabel. How do you recognize those things? How do you systematically get them on the table? And how do you make that part then of an information stream across your entire enterprise? And that's that, that's an impressive amount of work. It is. And it's, it's you know, I mean, we all we all talk about being patient-centric, right? But being able to do that and identify those needs is truly a patient-centric approach. But we really need to be family-centric too, right? We, it's like I mentioned, we, we cannot forget the caregivers and make sure that we're meeting their needs as well. In terms of other lessons learned or recommendations as other hospitals or health systems are hearing this, what would you recommend? Think about this, don't, don't try that. I think probably one of the things I would recommend is is taking a look at the risk assessment tool. You know, a lot of the readmission risk tools are based on LACE criteria, but there there's a lot missing in there. There there's a lot of things in those risk readmission tools that may, um, you know, that stratify the patients into high, moderate, or low risk for readmission. 
but um, you know, making sure that the social determinants are in there, that you can capture them as much as possible. Um, like I say, you, you can't really assess, ask the patient if they have food insecurities and then not be able to follow up with, with helping them if they do. You know, I, I think getting an accurate risk assessment for the patients really is what, what will help us design a discharge plan that will be effective. And it sounds like it's it's not so much the typical medical data set, it's all the other things that you're identifying as being important. It is, but I, but I also want to go back to the medication. If we at, at, at our health system, one of our hospitals, had that many errors in the medication reconciliation, it would not surprise me if other hospitals do too. I think it's something to look at. The initial intent of the medication reconciliation was to ensure that the patient was getting the right medications, the right dosages, et cetera. And, you know, what we did is we, you know, the whole intent was for the physician to sit down and really do a thorough medication reconciliation. And we know that's not happening. The nurses fill it out. The physician will come and check it. Our pharmacists who are doing these medication reconciliations are spending about 30 minutes on average um, with each record. Of course, they're seeing the high-risk patients, but spending a, a, a significant amount of time. And the thing is, is, you know, the pharmacists have the expertise. You know, they understand the medications, they understand the interactions. And so that, that would probably be, you know, something I would encourage everyone to think about. Think about that med rec and, you know, how we how we're historically done it um, and really who, who needs to be doing that reconciliation for these high-risk patients. The other thing that I appreciate about the way you guys came to this was uh, having, I've been reading a lot of medical literature around how hospitals and health systems engage in and are successful at quality improvement. And one thing that just rings out of the literature is that it's very important to have leadership buy-in and to use a framework for quality improvement that's evidence-based. And I heard you reference Lean and Six Sigma. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but to have an evidence-based framework to use data to understand the impact of the outcomes and to use a pilot and spread approach are all highly uh, successful pathways to achieving quality improvement. And it sounds like you guys are really on that. Yeah, it's it, it, we are. So we use, you know, our, our methodology, we use a quality model um, with a methodology built on, you know, first the customer needs followed by process-focused improvement and then, um, you know, continuous improvement. And so our uh, performance improvement team has, has really been a catalyst in escalating our performance. So, you know, we have the performance improvement engineers are involved in in making sure that process change is not only uh, sustained, but spread across the health system. So this most recent 15 top health system report that came out showed that our alignment across our organization is at the 86 percentile. Um, as well as our, our performance. And that's quite a feat. I know there was an article in Modern Healthcare recently talking about how difficult it is. The larger health systems are, um, the more difficult it is to be aligned, and particularly from, from a quality and safety standpoint. So I feel that uh, our performance improvement methodology, our quality model has really been central to that alignment. And Terry Shoulder, given the outcomes you guys have achieved, that's impressive given the size of your system. I want to thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity to share our journey. You know, we, we still have a lot of work to go and a long road to go, but I really believe that, that we are on the right track. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.